Welcome to Question Thursday. a busy program today. We begin with cut and spend. Let's be blunt. Managing a federal budget calls for some tough choices. Bigger deficits, bigger tax breaks for business. Is that the formula for economic success? Finance Minister Bill Morneau is here to defend his mini-budget and his controversial plan to support the media. Is it a buy-off or an effort to help democracy? Conservative Lisa Raitt jumps on the scrum to debate that. And then, Saudi or China? A murder of a Saudi journalist, a U.S. trade war with China. What's the biggest challenge to the government as the Prime Minister prepares to head to the G20 summit? Former Prime Minister Paul Martin is here with his view. And then, money pit. This is going to cost a lot of money no matter how you look at it. How in the world could it cost taxpayers a whopping $35 million to fix up the Prime Minister's residence at 24 Sussex Drive? Is the home worth the reno, or should we just tear it down? HGTV's Mike Holmes, the reno man himself, joins us with his view. Then, separatist sparks. The decision of the Ford government and the Conservative Party in Ontario has sparked a lot of frustration in the Francophone communities all across the country. And we know what has happened in the past when that's the case. Is the Ontario Premier Doug Ford stoking the flames of Quebec sovereignty? The former bloc leader Gilles Duceppe will weigh in on the scrum. This is Question Period. Let's go get some answers. Big deficits, big business tax breaks and a big controversy around a $600 million bailout for the media. Those are some of the highlights of the finance minister's new mini-budget, the so-called fiscal update. Remember that liberal promise to balance the budget by next year? Snap like an icicle. The deficit will be close to $19 billion, but don't worry, the government argues, because the overall debt will actually be lower. So what happened? To find out, we're now joined by the finance minister himself, Bill Morneau. Great to see you, sir. Happy to be here. Uh, let's talk about the fiscal update and the deficits. $2 billion higher than projected. No path to balance right now to 2024. So the government, your government, broke the promise of modest deficits of $10 billion that by the end of this mandate you were supposed to reach balance. Why don't deficits like this bother you? Well, what you know that we've been focused on from day one is how do we ensure that our economy continues to do well? From our standpoint, that means thinking about how do we make sure the growth is there? How do we make sure more Canadians are working? Those two things have gone very well. So the approach we've taken, investing in Canadians, has meant that the economy's turned around. We've got a level of growth that's, that's strong. We have 550,000 new jobs over the last three years, lowest rate of employment, unemployment in 40 years. So this is a very positive situation. And our view is that we can do that in a fiscally responsible way. That's what we've demonstrated. We've maintained that debt as a function of our economy, and we're lowering it over time. Okay, but the logic is, what you're saying is you stimulated the economy with spending in order to ensure growth. So there's been some growth. Now there's some headwinds, whether it's the price of oil, the trade war with China and the U.S. These are potential headwinds. The worry is if there is a setback, you've got to stimulate a gain for growth and you never get out of deficit. So it's essentially a constant form of structural deficit. Well, it's, it's not. Let's just acknowledge the fact that that's actually not the facts of the situation. First of all, always important to think about where you are. And our debt as a function of our economy, which you know, is a very favorable position. I mean, the hard work that the Cretchen and Martin government did 
way back when created a much better situation. So we've got a very, very positive balance sheet. That's the frame. And what we need to do is maintain that. And that's what we're doing. We are reducing that debt as a function of GDP. We need to keep on that track. We also know that we need to make investments for the future. And if businesses don't invest to create great jobs, then we won't have the future that we want in our country. Okay, and I, you're right. The, the so-called fiscal anchor, the debt to GDP ratio is going down. Let me just move to the other side. One of the stimulus sides, what you've done is $14 billion over a number of years to corporations in order to increase investment. Let's call it a response to the Trump corporate tax cuts. Why do you believe that will have that would stimulate growth and investment in the economy? I think we always need to recognize that uh, situations change. And the international situation clearly has changed over the last couple of years in, in multiple ways. But one of the ways is that the tax environment's changed. So when the United States decided to allow businesses to much more rapidly write off investments, it created an unequal playing field. So what we decided was that we were going to make sure that if there's going to be an unequal playing field, it's going to be to our benefit. And that's exactly what we did. We've made it so that the next investment that a business might make is going to be 5% advantaged if they do it in Canada. On the other side, some, some could say, look, we're, we're already pretty competitive because we have a low dollar compared to the United States. Our oil's low. We give health care. Instead of giving corporations tax breaks, who knows what they're going to spend those, those tax breaks on? You could, for example, have a national pharmacare program. A new study out says 730,000 Canadians are borrowing money to pay for drugs. Instead, you've given breaks to corporations and people are going broke paying for medicine. Why that choice? Let's start with saying that it's not either or. We had a fall economic update yesterday. We still have a budget that's coming in 2019. And, you know, I would just challenge a little bit of what you said in terms of the, what we're doing. We've actually made it so that the only way that corporations get an advantage is if they actually make an investment. So they have to make the investment in order to get that advantage. So we're not giving a, a reduced corporate tax rate, which would advantage, you know, investments made yesterday. We're only making advantage for investments made tomorrow. So that's critically important. Are you considering a national pharmacare program? Is that on the table? Well, we've said from day one that we want to make sure that pharmacare is something that works in our country. That's why we have an advisory committee looking at it right now. They're going to report back to us, and, and we want to ensure that we have a system that works well for all Canadians. That's uh, our goal. Uh, big thing in this fiscal update, the missing piece is the energy sector, the price of oil. Canadian oil, as you know, is at historic lows. Every $5 drop in the price of Canadian oil, the federal government loses about a billion dollars. This is historic lows why did you not have something specifically for the energy sector there? Can you tell us? Uh, well, it wasn't a missing piece for the energy sector. We acknowledge and, and realize the enormous challenge that people in Alberta, that businesses in Alberta and Saskatchewan are facing because of that price differential. It's a Canadian issue because, as you point out, we're challenged across the country because of that, that issue. But what we've said is we, we need to, first of all, think about the long term, and that's why we've looked at you know getting access to international markets through pipelines. And second of all, the measures we put in place with the fall economic statement, right. they're for all businesses, in all sectors, in all geographies of our country. And of course, the oil and gas sector are big investors in the economy. So we've created an opportunity for any business, including businesses in Alberta, to have an advantage with new investments. But the easy, frankly, the easy fix is to build that pipeline. The Trans Mountain Pipeline is the easiest fix for this whole solution financially, uh, trade diversity, all of that. 
they have, you and I have had this discussion, when are shovels going on the ground, when is the consultation going to be over, when is that pipeline going to be built? Can you give us any solid information on that? What we want to make sure is that we deal with the advice we got effectively from the federal court. They said very clearly that we need to think about the, the West Coast. We've got a process in place with National Energy Board to do that. It's constrained. We said it was 22 weeks. We also need to consult with Indigenous peoples. And for that to be meaningful, I'm not going to give you a deadline. We're going to do it in a way that meaningfully engages. And obviously, we're trying to do it in a way that has the appropriate time required. Our goal is to do this the right way, which is the only way that we're actually going to complete this. So those well, people, people are, yeah, but sure, those people that say, okay, give us an exact timeline, are actually making it less likely that we would get this done the right way. But so are we are losing, families are losing their jobs. I mean, this is a big, and, it's a crisis, a and, national and crisis. And therefore, we need to do it the right way so we get it right, and that's what we're doing. Last thing, uh, you've announced new subsidies for the journalism industry. Now, to be fair, the journalism industry lo lobbied hard for this, but almost $600 million. Um, the opposition has argued that your government is trying to buy off the media, right? And, and I think one of the key hinges is your government says you're going to appoint an independent committee to decide who gets the money where. How is that committee going to be appointed? And my concern about this, well, I know some journalism organizations may like it, is this will only increase the cynicism around journalism that, is, that it's biased, that it's in favor of the government, and that only the voices that your government deems appropriate, that you like and your committee likes, will get the cash. Well, let me just give you a little bit of my experience being in this role. I haven't found it plausible or possible in any way to actually get journalists to say what I want them to say. You know, I, I'd like it if it, the next time Never we're together happen. I can ask you to say exactly what I want, but it doesn't seem to be the way it works. We just think that a, a strong free press is essential for a strong democracy. As simply put as that, we know that the only way we can do this is by having an independent body to adjudicate how these but who tax appoints them? I mean, that's a, it's critical. You understand, I understand your intention, but you understand how the unanticipated consequence is it could actually give the impression of the exact opposite, that everybody's at the government's trough and there's no independence. That's well, a problem. Uh, you know, I'll acknowledge that, uh, that there's a degree of cynicism in your question. But what I can say to you is that we need to find a way to get an independent group of experts, including the journalist sector, to actually come up with an approach to make sure that we get a range of voices. We've committed to doing that. We'll have more information about how we're going to do that in the coming days and weeks. But it's important. Free press matters. Yeah, I would say skepticism. Not cynicism. Uh, Mr. Warner, always a pleasure to have you here. Thanks. Okay, thank you. Thanks so much. All right, later in the program, Conservative MP Lisa Raitt will respond to the Morneau plan for the economy and the media. But coming up next, what is the biggest threat to your prosperity right now? A China-U.S. trade war? Well, the former Prime Minister Paul Martin joins us next on that. Stay right here with Question Period. The grisly murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi hangs over the upcoming G20 meeting which takes place later this week in Argentina. And guess what? The Saudis are members of the G20, so should Justin Trudeau confront Saudi Arabia's crown prince, who's widely believed to have ordered that killing while he's there. But that's not the only controversy that could unravel this meeting. There's also a trade war between the United States and China. Is Donald Trump intent on undermining these international alliances. Well, the former Prime Minister of Canada and the architect of the G20, 
Paul Martin joins us now to find out he's in Montreal. Mr. Martin, always a pleasure to have you on the program. I want to talk about the G20, and you've always said Canada needs to take a leadership role in the G20. One of the key questions facing it, of course, is what to do about Saudi Arabia and how to confront Saudi Arabia over the murder of the journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Uh, Donald Trump, the U.S. president, refuses to condemn Saudi Arabia over that murder. He won't even say unequivocally that they had anything to do with it. Does Donald Trump undermine the moral authority of the West and the G20 with his position vis-a-vis Khashoggi? Well, I don't think that he'll undermine the G20. Um, I, I, think, I think he's certainly in the process of undermining uh, his own position. Um, and I, there's no doubt that there will be a discussion of this. Saudi Arabia is a member, um, and it will be there. That being said, Evan, I think that the elephant in the room is clearly going to be uh, the uh, U.S.-China trade war. Um, the effect of that on the global economy is, it will, is affecting every single member at that table. And there's not much doubt in my mind that what a hope will come out of this will be a truce uh, between China and the United States on which they, they can start to build what has to be done. So Saudi Arabia, absolutely. But I, I really believe the number one issue is going to be the U.S.-China trade war. Let me move to the U.S.-China and that trade war because I, you're absolutely right. It's vital to the Canadian economy as well. But let me just one more question on the Khashoggi file because it makes international headlines. I'm trying to understand, uh, in your view, what Donald Trump, the, the U.S.'s role, which lends moral authority to the G20 to enforce international norms, Mr. Martin. That was the point of the very organization that you talked about. Is Donald Trump undermining that? And does Canada now have to respond by, say, I don't know, not selling any weapons to Saudi Arabia in order to show that those norms can be meaningfully enforced? Well, (laughs) there's no doubt about that. I mean, the fact is that G20 was built upon the need for multilateralism, the need for uh, the major, the world's major economies and major regional economies to work together to have inclusive growth and, and to essentially deal with global issues uh, on a global basis. Now, the United States unilateralism uh, manifest in so many of these areas is obviously runs, uh, runs against this. And that what I would hope will happen here at this G20 is that, in fact, that we can begin to re- rebuild back to the kinds of actions that I believe uh, individual countries have to take as a whole. Yeah, I, I don't know how people deal with Donald Trump. That's, that's something that's going to have to happen here. You talk about the, the, the growing U.S.-China trade war. How dangerous is that, not only to the growth in the global economy, but specifically to Canada? Well, I think, I think that we, I, I believe that we can handle it. Um, and what obviously makes, makes it important is that we continue to build on the very successful European agreement, the, the very, very successful agreement we have done with Asia, and we really take a very strong Asian stance. As long as what we are doing as a country is building, is building for the future, when, uh, uh, for instance, I think that the fiscal update in which Bill Morneau said, this is what we're going to do to build the economy, Canadian economy going ahead, is the kind of thing that we have to do. And one of the things I'm sure you're going to see at the G20 is a number of other countries are going to follow in Canada's lead there. In 1998, you tabled your first balanced budget. 
1998, 20 years ago this year, this finance minister had increased revenues and he's blowing through his own promise, $10 billion deficits, now moving to $20 billion deficits with no plan to go to balance. I just wonder, this seems totally off the Paul Martin brand. Uh, are you worried about the fact that they increasingly refuse to have any plan to find a balance to the budget? That's not at all what they're doing. They, they're saying they are going towards, um, uh, they, are, they are building towards a, a, balance, a balanced budget. They can't tell you when it's going to happen. And the reason they can't tell you why it's, it's going to happen is that, in fact, what's happening with the United States, as we have just, we've just described, and the need for Canada to take action on its own to make sure that we don't suffer because of what the United States is doing. And we've got to build towards it. But the other thing that we've got to understand is that it isn't only what's going on in the United States. Bill Morneau inherited a long series of deficits. And if you take a look at the Harper re record, it's a bit, and I don't want to play politics here, Evan, but for, it's, a, you know, it's a bit rich for the Conservatives to be talking about liberal deficits when, in fact, they took a, a annual surpluses, a, a dropping debt ratio, and, in fact, what they did is they turned them into an annual series over the whole their whole regime of deficits and, and decreasing or increasing debt ratios. Right. To, to be fair, they were responding to the worst financial crisis uh, since the Great Recession, and it was, stimulus, uh, it was stimulus economic practice that actually the Liberals endorsed. And to be fair, they brought back to a balanced budget when they left. But let me just respond to one more thing you said, Mr. Martin, because it's, you talk about the destabilizing forces of a China-U.S. trade war, but also the low price in oil. How should Canada respond to the historic lows in the price of oil were absolutely getting creamed on the fact that we have to sell at a massive discount our oil. How, how should Canada respond to that? Well, Canada can only respond by dealing with the tools that it has. Are we pipeline short? Yes, we are. Um, one of the, re the reasons that we're pipeline short, and we saw that in the recent court decision, uh, was that, in fact, uh, we took consultation for, for granted. That was something that arose before the Liberals took office. Uh, and the Liberals have got to solve that issue. Uh, it's very clear in terms of our working with the First Nations, there has to be far better working together. And I believe that what we're, we're now seeing is that foundation being laid. Yeah, I mean, that's the big... You've been the, an advocate for much more consultation with Canada's First Nations and Indigenous peoples. By the same token, many people say, okay, but... We can't get a pipeline built. So how do you square the circle with historic lows, job losses, literally billions of dollars lost, and the fact that these consultations, either A, they go on for a long time, and B, they may kill the pipeline because of that? Well, first of all, as you know, there's a very large body of thought within the Indigenous community that wants the pipeline. Uh, uh, they, what, what they're saying is we just want a sound environmental assessment, one that takes place what happens with pipelines on the ground and what, once it happens, once it, 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 it's loaded into ships and they're on their way. And that assessment, the courts have said, was not sufficient. That has been something that's been built in there for a number of years. The Liberals are now trying to deal with it. We're talking a lot of, a lot of politics here. I think the government is doing the right thing. I think mm -hmm. that what they've done in terms of building ahead, giving business the chance, 
to, to, to in fact have larger capital cost allowances and build with the future is the kind of thing that we have to do. Paul Martin, former Prime Minister of Canada, always great to have you on the program, so appreciate it. Evan, whatever you want. All right, coming up, it's now a national embarrassment. The official residence of Canada's Prime Minister sits empty and the bill to fix it at least $35 million. Should it be torn down or renovated? Well, the famous Mike Holmes from Homes on Homes joins us with his idea for the big Sussex fix. Stay right here with Question Period. There's mold, there's asbestos, and the electrical system has been deemed a fire hazard. Yep, 24 Sussex, the official residence for Canada's Prime Minister since 1951, is a national embarrassment. No one has lived there since Stephen Harper moved out back in 2015. And it gets worse. A new report says renovating it will cost the taxpayer $34.5 million, but it could be torn down and a brand new house could be rebuilt for $38 million. Big money. Save it or scrap it. Are we getting ripped off on this thing? Let's find out. Joining me now, Mike Holmes. He is, of course, the host of HGTV's hit show, Homes on Homes. He once put a bid in to renovate 24 Sussex, so he knows the house well. Mike, great to have you on the program. When you saw the bill, did that strike you as way too high? You know, uh, it's funny because this has been a subject now for many years, and to hear that kind of money, almost 35 million, 34.5 to be exact, and that was done by the NCC. So they've had, they put out some tenders to see how much it's going to cost. That's a huge amount of money. There's things we need to look at. It is the Prime Minister's home or supposed to be the Prime Minister's home. There's a lot of things that need to be done. We're going to have to work with the Secret Service going in, going out. There's going to be secret rooms. There's going to be, well, just the taking out the asbestos alone is going to cost a fortune in money. I think the big question is... Do you renovate it or do you take it down and build new? I'm always going to say take it down and build new. We can make it look the same, but at $38 million, I can build an awful lot of houses for that value. Yeah, listen, this house is 12,000 square feet, okay? Um, so that's about almost $2,900 a square foot. Now, you do a lot of building. For $2,900, almost $3,000 a square foot is, I mean, is there any house in Canada that costs that much money to build? I'm going to say there's probably not a house in Canada that would cost 2900 per square foot to, to build. Uh, what is the average? 400 to 450 for high end. And that is a lot of money when you really look at it. It's a lot of money. I'm sitting in my garage. This garage is about $250,000 to build, but it's got a bar. It's got everything. It holds on my cars. When it comes to this home, Another question should be, should it be a museum? Should we turn it back to history for all the prime ministers that were there, for the public to walk in and see it? Or should it be for the prime minister and the next prime minister and continue this cycle? That is a big question. I'm not sure what to do about that. Is this a national embarrassment in your view? I mean, this is your brand, your do it right. We are a G7 country. We have no house for our leader. Do you find that a national embarrassment, Mike? I do find it an embarrassment that nothing has happened yet. It is for our leader uh, that we should be paying attention to this. It should have been done years ago. Now, there's a lot of, of problems that come from that. It's who wants to say we foot the bill? The last prime minister, this prime minister, the prime minister afterwards. 
It shouldn't be about the Prime Minister. It should be about Canada. We should be doing this for our country, for the history, and for the future Prime Minister and even the existing Prime Minister right now. If we thought that way, at least we're moving in the right direction. If we were talking about, you know, Queen's Park or something to do in Ottawa uh, downtown, that's an awful lot of money to fix the heritage there too. So there's no real difference other than it is supposed to be the home of the Prime Minister. Should we do something about it? The answer is absolutely yes. Should we be honest about it? The answer is yes. And should we, should we do it to the best of our ability without cheaping out? The answer is yes. Yeah, although I got to say, most people watching are thinking, gosh, every time I get a renovation, it's always double the cost of the estimate. That worries me. But, Mike, real quick, how long would it take? I mean, what's the time? And let's say they said, forget it. We'll spend $35 million. There's some taxpayers accept it for some whatever reason. I don't know. How long would it take to rip it, strip it, and rebuild something great? One, it always takes longer to renovate because you're trying to bring back what the history of the house is. To take it down and build new is always faster. But let's be serious. This is a big place, a big job. There's going to be an awful lot of people involved. There's going to be Secret Service involved. There's going to be people coming in to make sure it's right. Hopefully no changes. My guess is two years. Two years. Well, it's been a lot longer than that. Mike Holmes on Holmes, I bet he'd like to take that contract. Mike, you always do it right, and I love having you on the program. Thanks so much. Thank you. Keep making it right. All right. Thanks to Mike Holmes. Got to leave it there. He'd probably do a good job on that home. Coming up, the money debate. Is the government plan to run deficits, give tax breaks to business and the media? More about politics than the economy. The Scrum is here to debate that and what to do about the real crisis in the oil patch. Conservative MP Lisa Raitt will join us as our special guest. Stay with Question Period. Isn't it true that this government just believes the job of the media is to shower praise on the Prime Minister and the job of taxpayers is to pay for it all? I think it's insulting to think that journalists can be bought off. press in this country because we understand how critical that is to our democracy. Well, if you thought the big controversy about the government's new economic plan would be the deficits, you would be partially right. They're controversial. What about the tax breaks for corporations or no hard plan to help Alberta deal with the oil prices? Yup, those are genuine issues. But after the government announced a $600 million fund over five years to help the media deal with the digital age, well, things got wild, as you saw in that exchange. The Conservatives have openly accused the government of trying to bribe the media before the next election. Liberals say it's just about helping the free press. Which is it? To talk about all those issues, let's bring in the scrum. Tonda McCharles is the senior reporter with the Toronto Star. Joyce Napier is CTV's Ottawa bureau chief. Craig Oliver is CTV's chief political commentator. And our special guest today is Conservative deputy leader Lisa Raitt. All right. Welcome, everybody. i got to start with Lisa Raitt. We've had Bill Morneau, the finance minister, on earlier in the show. Lisa, uh, members of your party, I've talked to them, people like Pierre Polyevra have called this a bribe, the end of objective journalism. Is this the right way or the wrong way to help journalism as revenues are falling and coverage is falling across the country? So, first of all, Evan, um, back in the recession in 2009, 
our government did indeed help media in terms of having revenues fall off from advertising. So we've been down this road before, but I think what my colleagues are talking about and what the concern is, is what it looks like optically going forward. And I'll give you an example, if I may. If you have organizational links to a source or to the subject matter of a story, a lot of the times you'll see a journalist have to insert in the story, by the way, this, was, um, this organization has this link to us. I'm wondering if going forward somebody is giving a story or, or doing um, a hit and they have to say, when they say government sources, they then have to say, by the way, the governor of Canada has provided X amount of dollars to this station. And that's the problem. And that's, I think, what my colleagues right. are talking about. But I'm just being a little bit more specific about it. Well, that's the concern you're, of the optics. To, to be fair, you're also being a little gentler. They're saying basically it's a bribe. You can't trust journalism because that's Joyce. You're shaking your head. I'm shaking my head because, I mean, we are uh, familiar with public broadcasting in this country. And do they always say, oh, by the way, uh, we get our money from the government? No, they don't. Um, and, you know, the end of objective uh, journalism, I thought that, ended when we started being accused of fake news. I mean, you know, we're, we're like a favorite punching ball, and I understand that, and, and, and that's fair game. Uh, but this is a more serious issue and a difficult issue for us to tread. We've had this conversation before, and um, it, isn't me, it doesn't mean that because there is a funding coming from the government that all of a sudden we are brainless people and uh, we are sold, and it's not that easy. I, I agree. There's a self-serving element of journalists who are talking about this. But, Craig, a lot of the integrity of this, if there is integrity to help, will be contingent upon the so-called independent panel. Now, the criticism mm -hmm. is that the Liberals are appointing the independent panel, but I think a lot of this hinges upon that as to who gets the money. And I'll tell you, there, I think there's some genuinely uh, poignant political questions about that. Well, also the question of what is responsible news organization, right. uh, how much they get, mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and who gets it. Uh, very difficult decisions to make. We could find ourselves uh, talking about issues we never dreamt we'd be talking about in regard to uh, journalism in a big way. Uh, Tonda, one of, one of the questions is, I understand no political journalist wants to have the appearance of bias. So the, the help to the, the fact that journalism is in crisis may have a, a unanticipated consequences of creating cynicism and doubt where there may not be some, but it well, may it, actually it, be hurtful. It, well, it may, be, it, it may feed that, especially right. if people like Pierre Poilievre and Michelle Rempel feed the idea that nobody can be trusted and nobody's a professional. But look, yes, this is an awkward thing for us to talk about. Frankly, I'd rather my corporate owners be discussing right. the policy measures and whether they're effective or not in their business model. Uh, but to the point that Lisa made. I don't know that, you know, a disclaimer on the masthead of every paper in Canada would make any difference. Really, the point they're making is, I think, sidestepping the real issue. What they could, I think, speak about is the policy measures. Stephen Harper's government, Lisa, your government, frequently used tax credits to encourage good behavior. In fact, Stephen Harper in his recent book said it's a great way to promote uh, a civic community cohesion, if you will. So if there is a, a good measure in there, I think it is the measure that provi provides it's a tax mm -hmm. credit to people who are willing to pay for journalism, to the subscriber okay. themselves. Uh, one thing for sure, the yeah. debate about that we see in the States about the media being front and center in a campaign, fake news, trusted news, 
It's clearly arrived now in some political way. That's here. Let me move on to the deficit, Lisa Rate. Uh, the Liberals have clearly yeah. broken their promise. Remember, during the last election, modest budgets of $10 billion, and they're going to move to balance by the next election. That's not happening. They argue that the debt-to-GDP ratio is going down, so everything's okay. Do you buy that argument? I don't. And what really concerns me, Evan, is the money that they're moving around on the revenue side. We all know that they overspend. We've seen the overspending and we've seen the programming expenses go up. But what I saw this time in the books that really concerned me was a billion dollar surplus in the EI account that they're just taking into general revenues. I saw 250 million coming out of those countervailing tariffs that are supposed to be for steel workers going into general revenues to pay for programs. So they're moving around inside the budget as well that um, hopefully won't have to be there. EI is supposed to be at a balance and those right. tariffs shouldn't be there, but that's the money that they're using. Evan, the, the government, the Liberal government, is really hooked on deficits. It's an alluring drug. It's a feel-good drug. Uh, and it there are so many more rewards in spending money, giving money to any number of organizations, often very valuable investments. Uh, there are a lot more rewards than there are in putting money into reducing the deficit. And I don't, yeah, think, they're, I don't think they're finished with their spending. I mean, next spring, no, is, a, an election, next spring is an election budget, an election year budget. And they've left yeah. themselves, I think, they've committed to deficit financing of other big programs like right. Pharmacare. I think we're going to see no end of the spending next year because they've convinced themselves, if not others, that the country can afford this as long as the economy and keeps growing. Was, as long as the economy big, keeps growing. There was a big shadow on this one, and it was Donald Trump. So there was something that this government had right. to do for corporate Canada, because they were being lobbied, and rightly so. And corporate Canada was angry 70, at Exactly. And 75% of the jobs created in the last three years were created by the private sector. So if you care about job creation... You've got a mind for these companies, and that's what they did. So they gave them tax credits instead of lowering corporate taxes because that would be a lot more expensive. So in defense of it, but yes, this is obviously spend, spend, spend liberals, but in defense of this particular okay. one, and what else should they have done? Next time it will be Pharmacare, and yes, they will say, well, here's a right. deficit to cover our costs But Pharmacare, Pharmacare is a different... We'll the deficit just let her rip. But no, no, that's a different story. One thing they didn't have, though, yeah. Lisa Ray, one thing they didn't have in yeah. there, yeah, they, they absolutely allow corporations and businesses to write off capital costs and investment and equipment, that and I get sense. that, but there was no direct line of help for Alberta where there's a massive yeah. uh, crisis, the price of oil is at historic lows, is that cost that they don't have they don't have an answer there even though the answer well we know one's the pipeline but so far no pipeline yeah great concern last thursday when the prime minister was in calgary two thousand people showed up outside of the hotel where he was speaking to protest it is a real issue and although we may not hear it outside the borders of alberta and saskatchewan it is a serious issue it affects our entire economy and they really didn't have much of anything in there and the prime minister offered words of cold comfort, which is, I recognize that this is a problem, but now you got to do something about it, and we haven't seen it. And the, the concern is, is that it, the anger is getting greater and greater, and it's something this government has to seriously look at. Uh, Brad Wall, the former Premier of Saskatchewan, is saying he has never seen Western alienation uh, so intense, uh, and uh, he, he knows what he's talking about, and that's got to worry about Trudeau. Trudeau. But it's not, a, it's not enough just to blame Trudeau for all of this. It's, it's larger. It's about responsible uh, indigenous leaders, especially coastal, uh, coastal chiefs, 
who are making arguments and going to the courts to stop development. I Trudeau can't interfere with that. We're, we're not Washington. He's not Trump. Uh, we have a rule of law here. He's got to allow that legal process to take its course. I think Craig makes a good point that it's a longer term and larger picture that's unfolded in Alberta. And the oil price, Trudeau can't do anything about the world price of oil. Yes, he's done, I think, uh, a significant move in buying that pipeline and trying to advance the effort to get Alberta oil to Tidewater. But there's another question. Maybe, you know, it, we, there is a reality here. For, it's fine for Brad Wall to say that, but Trudeau's not going to pay a huge political price because he doesn't hold a lot of seats in those provinces, right? Mm. So, you know, would he, would he, I think, gain by having put in a couple of targeted measures there? Probably he would have. He, he might have deflected some of the criticism, but I don't know that he would stand yeah. to gain any seats. It was tone deaf as far as Alberta's concerned, and I totally yeah. understand that. Tone, completely yeah. tone deaf. They, they, know, they didn't even yeah. mention it, let alone do something about it. They mentioned interprovincial trade barriers. They didn't put money on the table for that, said we intend to talk to the premiers about that. But Alberta was nowhere to be seen. Pipeline was nowhere to be seen. And that's huge. Uh, and how could they? They are the federal government. Alberta is part of the federal government. Uh, it is their territory uh, as well. And they were completely blind and deaf to that. A lot of Alberta companies, though, in fairness, will be able to take advantage of these tax changes and other changes the government made on uh, Thursday. Lisa, last word to you. I, yeah, just on true. that, what, what is the answer? Like, and I asked Bill Morneau. The answer is clearly the pipeline, but they say it's caught up in its own timeline. I I don't know if that ever goes through. Uh, what could they have done in this mini budget? Well, they could have done a lot more. I mean, way back in the spring, the prime minister was talking about exploring legislation. He talked to Rachel Notley about that. He uh, certainly didn't say anything about not collecting carbon tax. Rachel Notley had to step in and say that she's not going to charge carbon tax to the oil and gas companies in Alberta. They're really hurting. I mean, it's one thing for us to sit in Ontario and pontificate as what we do in terms of what may be happening there and it's just a phase we're going through and we really can't blame the government but I got to tell you guys this is serious stuff and this is where a government has to step in and find the tools and the ways to do it. They're the federal government in a majority position. There are things they can do and they should be talking to the PCO about this. Alright I got to leave it there. Lisa Raid, thanks for joining us this week as our special guest. Coming up next has the Premier of Ontario reignited the separatist fires with his cuts to Francophones, the former Bloc Québécois leader Gilles Decep will jump on the scrum next to talk about that and Canada's biggest money pit, 24 Sussex. Stay with us. We will continue to make sure to put pressure on Queen's Bart and on the Conservative Party in Ontario and in, in, in Canada, the federal party, because this is a question that is a national issue. Well, after scrapping Ontario's French language services commissioner and canceling plans to build a French language university drew heavy criticism, Ontario Premier Doug Ford is trying to close the separatist Pandora's box. Actually, late Friday, he backtracked and went into damage control, restoring the commissioner, but at a lesser level. He actually created a ministry of Francophone affairs and even added a senior advisor for Francophone affairs. But is the damage already done? And how big a problem will this be for Conservative federal leader Andrew Scheer or an opportunity for Justin Trudeau, who might be taking advantage of this? Let's find out. The Scrum is back. Tonda McCharles is here. Joyce Napier is here. Craig Oliver is here. And our special guest today is the former leader of the Bloc Québécois, Gilles Decep. And we will start with Monsieur Decep. 
Is this the start of an old fight reigniting? Well, first of all, I would say that I consider that as a direct attack on the Francophone and their Franco-Ontarians and their rights. Uh, I was amazed the day after Ford made his decision. I read all the English, Canadian English newspapers, almost nothing on that, even in the, in the bulletin news. So when I remembered that debate over the high bonjour, making first pages all over Canada, I said, is it a, a double standard or what? Everybody's exploiting this issue. You said it. The Liberals were in power. Did they ever build this university? Did they ever consult Franco-Ontarians as to where this, this university had to be built? They were not agreeing with the location of it. And yes, Justin Trudeau is exploiting it as well to criticize the federal conservative leader who really has nothing to do with this. Uh, I, I think that Tana, it was an opportunity... Like, when, Well, I I think it was an opportunity. Yes, of course, the Liberals are exploiting it. They jumped on it right away. That's political fair game, in my view. Um, The Liberals have carried the banner for minority rights, and so it's a perfect, perfect issue for them. Andrew Scheer missed a political opportunity here, I think. He said in a very mild-mannered way, it's up to Doug Ford, it's a provincial issue, you know, he didn't come out and say, I disagree with this, and if I am leader of a federal government, I will look after minority language interests in this way. Uh, So I think he set himself up to be right. attacked by but the Liberals. nobody Craig, built this I, university. I, I, I think that, it's not just uh, about I, the university. I, I, think, I think this Craig public Oliver. alliance uh, between the Andrew Scheer and Doug Ford has been a mistake. I, I, I don't think that Scheer can afford Ford. This guy is trying to cut down a Canadian totem, uh, the French language, protection of its culture and language outside Quebec especially. Uh, and they, uh, uh, the federal leader now is going to have to somehow defend his friend, Mr. Ford. And this is just the beginning, whatever else Ford does. I think he should cut himself loose from Ford pretty quickly. Uh, Gilles Duceppe, how could this issue play out in Quebec? I know it's a very consequential issue. There's 100 ridings across Canada that depend on the francophone vote. There's 600,000 francophones in Ontario. How could this play out in Quebec? Well, I mean, we don't know what will happen with the bloc, but if Blanchet is coming as the leader, uh, the bloc had nearly 20%, which is more than Quebec Solidaire had last provincial election. Uh, it could open a door for them because people who are not satisfied with uh, Trudeau will hesitate voting for the Tories, and I don't think the NPD will exist anymore after next election in Quebec. And 33% of the Quebecers, of Quebecers voted either Parti Québécois right. or Québec Solidaire. So a lot of votes. It could be a card in the hand of the Bloc Québécois. Uh, okay, or anybody. So this is a big issue. Let me turn to, well, I'm going to call it the money pit. I think that was a movie when we were uh, young, <laughs> The Money Pit. Uh, 24 Sussex. It's a national embarrassment now. No one can live there, right? I think the first prime minister lived there back in the 1950s, 1951. A new report says $35 million to renovate it, $38 million to rebuild it. Um, Craig, I'll start with you. Okay. What do you do with 24 <laughs> Sussex? I, you know, it's not a particularly historic or important place to me. Uh, As far as I'm concerned, tear it down, rebuild it if you want. Uh, But really, one of the most historic places in the country is the British High Commission residence, which is just a block down the street. Uh, I think we should uh, try to make a deal with the British, if necessary, do a Brexit, uh, evict them, (laughs) evict them. 
and we, the prime minister should move in there. That is one of the most historic uh, places in this city and in the country. I don't think well, we have to, I don't, the British. Okay. I don't think the federal government has to go there. In fact, I think they could knock down 24 Sussex right now. It's not, as you say, very historic. It's kind of ugly. Yeah. It, there's no saving the, the stone. Right. But it could be a showpiece for Canadian green technology, uh, a whole modern new spectacular building on the shores of the Ottawa River looking over that. That is a beautiful place for a Prime Minister's residence. I wouldn't say evict our neighbours, but knock it down and make it a showcase of yeah. Canadian engineering. Well, Jill Duceppe, there's a house you never wanted to live in, clearly, but what's your take on it? <laughs> but, but one thing it will surprise you is that it was the first time we discussed that in the Internal Board of Economy. I was a member of that committee. It's back in 1993. There was a plan to renovate all the uh, parliamentarians' uh, building, parliamentarian buildings, uh, governmental buildings, I should say, and it was called the Galliano Plan. And the bloc supported that because we said uh, we have to act and very rapidly. If we wait too long, it costs a lot more, exactly what's happening now. And it's also a part of heritage, Canadian heritage. And uh, I ha we have to respect that. Even if I'm a sovereignist, I think it's a stand we should have towards any other countries. So uh, every time an election was coming, the plan was postponed. And with the result, it will cost today maybe five or six, six, more time than, six times more than what was planified in 1993. But so, so look at that. Isn't that amazing? That the former leader of the Bloc Quebecois says it's worthwhile to spend the money. Now, it's not feathering the nest of any prime minister, right, Joyce? Well, this no, belongs to Canada. That, Liberal, conservative, Make whoever. no mistake. Right. We are here today because of a total lack of political courage. That's it. No, none of these parties, not the conservatives, not the liberals, had the, the, the guts to say, okay, Canadians, we're going to have to spend millions of dollars on this. Right. And none of them wanted to do it. So today we're in a very embarrassing situation that the home of the Prime Minister, 24 Sussex, is falling apart. Right. It's, 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 the, it's the same. In 1993, the bloc said we should, we should operate. It's the same lack of Good courage that has prompted every Prime Minister not to buy a new plane to That's fly right. around the world right. in. <laughs> they don't want to be seen to be... Uh, profiting and, and paying out for luxury because Jean Chrétien once called the bad plane a Taj Mahal. So it, it's hypocrisy. It's an old plane. It's an right. old it's, plane. We've been in it and we know it's an old plane and the, the politicians are just going on and on and on about it. But, but they also didn't want to move out. Uh, I think that was part of all of this. <laughs> Who and didn't want to move out? Prime ministers living there didn't particularly want to have to move out, and neither did their families. Trudeau finally did that, and so now they're We're stuck st with what to do. Well, it ain't no Taj Mahal, I can tell you that. All right, Gilles Deceb, great to have you back on the program. Joyce, Tonda, and Craig, pleasure.